You're listening to a message from our Sunday morning service at Hayes Hills Baptist Church, where we seek to bring life-changing hope to an ever-changing people through the unchanging gospel. If you'd like to learn more about our church, you can visit hayeshills.com. Our prayer is that this message would serve to equip and empower you to live as a follower of Jesus in conjunction with your belonging to a local body of believers. Well, we've been walking through a sermon series on 1 Corinthians, which has and will take up the majority of this year. But this week, however, we're pivoting and looking at the topic of identity. Specifically, what does Ephesians 2 have to say about how we were once dead in our trespasses and how Jesus has redefined our identity? It's important for us as we consider the big questions in life of who am I? What do I belong to? What defines me? And as we dive into understanding more about ourselves, the world around us, and more about God. So next week, we'll be back in 1 Corinthians, but we'd invite you for now to tune in with us as we dive into Ephesians 2. When I worked at the Hyundai dealership selling service, which is not glamorous work, I've shared with you from this stage before, uh, one of the things they pounded into us and wanted us to, to recite every chance we got to any customer or potential customer is that no one knows your car better than the dealership. Our technicians had been trained by the factory that made your vehicle. They know it the best, so you'll get the best quality service there. Now, some of you, you're, you're already going like, okay, that's a sales pitch. I've, I've heard that sales pitch before, right? I, that's just a way to justify the higher prices and to try and keep my business in one spot, right? And I would be with you on that. just feels like a sales technique. But there's one instance in my time working at the car dealership where I felt like that phrase may have been justified. See, in 2008, Hyundai made a design change to their oil filters. You know, there's a filter. It just screws on the bottom of your oil pan. It's changed every time you get an oil change. But see, they made it where not just the filter had to be replaced, but a little 10-cent metal O-ring that went between the filter and the oil pan. Now, the aftermarket companies, they didn't pick up on this or they weren't aware of this, so they started making aftermarket filters that did not include this little tiny metal washer. And so people were buying these brand new Hyundais, driving them through their first oil change, and then having them towed into the dealership thinking they had a warranty claim for a bad motor. When in reality, they had gone to the people who did not make or know their vehicle well, and they had an oil filter attached that as they drove, spilled oil all over the ground until the motor was dry and the engine seized up and needed to be replaced. See, the the people who knew that the best were the people who created it, right? And... We can debate all day long whether or not taking your car to the dealership or to your local mechanic is the better option. But when it comes to the identity on who we are, there is no debate. We must look to our creator because he knows us best and he has what's best for us. We're going to spend some time today talking about this word identity. We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 2. If you want to open your Bibles, we're going to be in Ephesians 2, 1 through 9 this morning. If you have a digital version, you're going to want to look up the ESV, the English Standard Version. That's what I'll be reading out of today. If you look around you, 
you turn on the news, if you spend much time outside of your Christian circles, it, it very quickly dawns on you that this world yearns to understand its identity. This world yearns to understand what's the point, what's the purpose of all of this. And as the world strives to answer these questions, they just get it so very wrong, don't they? They strive for the truth and they end up in all of the wrong places. See, what the world is trying to tell you is that your identity is defined by you, your heart, your desires, your passions, your truth. And if you're living true to all of that, your identity can be whatever you want it to be because that's what's best for you. But if we look at the word of God, we see that we were created by the living God with a purpose and with an identity. And he created us that way very intentionally. And when we stray outside of that, things typically don't go very well for us. Before we dive into scripture, if you would pray with me this morning. God, we thank you for Ephesians chapter 2, that we can look at your truth and we can understand it, God. And even as the passage starts with some hard-to-swallow truths about who we are, the passage doesn't end with those truths, but rather it ends with the truth of the hope of your word, of the gospel, that there is great hope in you despite our failures, despite our shortcomings, despite our sin. And God, as we spend time in this passage this morning, I just pray for the people in this room that they would be open and ready and willing to hear your word with all of its authority and follow you. God, if any person sits in this room this morning, walked in here with, with burdens on their heart and, and struggles in their life or sin that they haven't dealt with, I pray that you would just give them the courage to just hand that all to you in this moment. That we would confess the failures of our sins and allow your forgiveness to wash over us that we would hand you our burdens and our struggles and know that your strength is sufficient while ours is weak. And God, as we pray these things this morning, I, I just ask that your spirit would move in this place and help us to understand your truth and that you would change us with it. We pray these things in your name. Amen. First three verses of Ephesians chapter 2 says this, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We're going to have some key points this morning. They're going to pop up on the screen. If you're a note taker, you can jot that down in your bulletin. But the first one is this. The identity of humanity is hopelessness because of sin. The identity of humanity is hopelessness because of sin. And I said in my prayer, this passage starts off with some hard-to-swallow truth, doesn't it? Humanity's identity... Because of sin is hopelessness. The, the Bible makes that very clear. The Old Testament law shows us how, fall, how, far, how far we fall short of God's glory, how we can't measure up. The New Testament shows us in Romans clearly that we've all fallen short of the glory of God because of our sin. The identity of humanity is hopelessness because 
of sin. But see, the Bible, it's not a story of our hopelessness. It's a story of our great hope. But to get to our great hope, we first have to understand, we have to digest, we have to come to terms with this reality that without Jesus, there is only hopelessness. In our sin, there is only hopelessness. But if you like movies or books, you know the best stories are when great hope shines through the darkness of absolute despair and hopelessness, right? I can't think of any better example of this uh, than one of the biggest loves of my life, the Chicago Cubs. See, I've been to many Cubs games. I've been to games where they've won by six or seven runs. I've been to games where they've lost. And when they win by a bunch, that feels good and you leave happy. And when they lose, it just feels kind of empty, right? It feels like, man, I journeyed all the way to this stadium and there was so much hope in the air and there was excitement. And now it's just kind of blah feeling as you leave. It doesn't feel good. But see, the greatest story in sports comes when hopelessness takes over. And at the last minute, hope comes through. And I can't think of any greater example in sports than the bottom of the ninth inning in baseball when all seems lost. And your team that you love comes up and wins the game. Right? I can think of one instance specifically. In 2015, it was Cubs versus the Cleveland Indians, and the Cubs were no-hit through seven innings. Remember those no-hitters and how rare they are that Pastor Aaron talked about last week. And I just remember like the excitement early in the game and as the game went on and it went on and it went on and literally nothing was happening. Everybody's getting anxious and antsy. Fortunately, the Cubs pitching was doing great, so it was 0-0 until they found themselves down in the bottom of the ninth. 40,000 people that were excited. The energy was in the air. It's all gone. You're sitting just quietly, just feeling like, ugh, this game was gross. This wasn't the fun that I thought I was paying for when I bought my ticket, right? And then Chris Bryant steps to the plate, and he hits one deep into the right center field bleachers, and the Cubs win the game in a walk-off home run. See, when the Cubs win by six, seven, eight runs, and you're there, and the final out is recorded The stadium is excited and there's happiness in the air and everybody sings Go Cubs Go, one of the greatest works of art in the history of music. And there's excitement, but it is nothing compared to when all hope is lost and your hero steps to the plate and wins the game with a home run that you never could have saw coming. The stadium feels completely different then. It's jubilation. You're jumping up and down. You're hugging strangers that you've never met before. It's a party. Why? Because when all hope seems lost and then you're saved, you're pulled up out of it, that is an awesome story. God knew the story that he was writing when he wrote the Bible, when he thought of creation and eternity. And he has got the best walk-off home run story in the history of the world. And it's called the gospel. See, God, he chose to create this world. He chose to create this version of creation. He, he knew what he was doing right from the beginning. And that's important for us to understand about our all-knowing, all-powerful, almighty God. He knew what he was doing, and he chose to create this world and us in it. And as we consider that and think about that, we come across verse 4 in Ephesians chapter 2, and it starts with two words. 
Y'all see what they are? But God. And in these two words, this passage that is great despair and hopelessness and, and, and looks like humanity is lost, changes in an instant. Because yes, humanity is hopeless, but God. Look at verses 1 through 3. It uses strong language like dead in our trespasses. Verse 3 says that we live for the passions of the flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind, and it leads to what? It leads to hopelessness. It leads to separation from God. Verses 1 through 3, by themselves, are not a good story. And then verse 4, but God, read with me, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus." Key number two, our identity can only go from hopeless to restored through Jesus. In sin, our identity is hopelessness. But in Jesus, our identity goes from hopeless to restored. Set right. That's what that word righteous, righteous means. Made right. Things are set right. The wrongs that have been done are now corrected. They are made right. The price has been paid because while we talked about Romans 3.23 that because of sin, we've all fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 6 explains that the wages, the price, the payment due for our sin is death. That's the only way that justice can come for our sin. And Jesus in his graciousness, in his might and awesomeness steps out of heaven and he pays that price for us so that we can be free from it. And in this passage, one of the coolest phrases that we find in Scripture exists that he might show through the immeasurable riches of his grace. The immeasurable riches of his grace. His grace cannot be measured. We can't, we can't even like wrap our minds around that. I do, I do woodworking. I like to, to build things. And when you're building something, it doesn't really matter what you're building. The measurements matter a ton. A wall, a chair, a table, a house, whatever it might be. The measurements are key. In fact, we have places like NASA that have dedicated hundreds and hundreds and thousands of hours and millions of dollars into figuring things out like how many light years is it from Earth to the sun? Why do we need to know that? But we're curious and we got to know how, how far away exactly is the sun. And so we come up with a way to measure that and try to scale it and understand it. Everything in our, this physical world that we see, we understand kind of its, its depth and its size. And, and we can put, we can quantify that. But God's grace, the riches of his grace, they are immeasurable. We can't measure it. We can't wrap our minds around it. We can't find words to describe how amazing the grace of God truly is. In verse 
5, it says, even when we were dead in our trespasses. Uh, another verse that you might know maybe even a little bit better that, that talks about this truth is Romans 5, 8 that says, but God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. See, God, he knows you. He knows all of those things that are true about you from verses 1 through 3. He didn't, he didn't stumble across this at some point and then decide, oh, I better do something and come up with the gospel. He understands our sin. He sees it. He knows it. You can't hide from him. The shame that you feel, the things that you struggle with, the burdens that you carry, the failures in your life, all of those things that exist and that we try to hide away, we try to put our best foot forward when we show up at church or when we log on and try to present ourselves on social media or wherever it might be, God sees it all. God understands exactly who we are. He sees it. He sees you in full. And how does he look at you? He looks at you rich in mercy, great in love, with immeasurable grace. Isn't that good news? The person responsible for judging you and your reality, your failures, your sin that you are responsible for, they, he comes to you with an attitude great in love, rich in mercy, with immeasurable grace. You can't think of three thing, better things to say about the God of the universe who will judge you for what you've done. And in his great love and his rich mercy and his immeasurable grace, he comes and he says the judgment has come and it has been paid for in full by Jesus. And so there is judgment no longer if you follow him. It's amazing. I hope, I hope you grasp how amazing the hope of God is that he loves you despite your identity of hopelessness and sin. And he comes and he says, you are hopeless, but I am hope and I have come and I have a plan called the gospel and it will save you from all of this despair. Verses eight and nine. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one can boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. See, here's, here's the thing. God, we, we talked about this, he, he knew what he was doing from the beginning. But if we really start to think about that, uh, Danny and I ended up talking about this Wednesday night, like just random theology conversation that, uh, that we tend to have at times. And we were talking about this amazing truth that God created the garden. He put Adam and Eve there and the tree of knowledge of good and evil that he says do not eat from, he put that there. Right, like it wasn't just something that God was just like, hey, there's this thing that's outside of my control, stay away from it. He put it there. He, he knew the story. And he, he chose to enter into the reality of the world that he created. The gospel was not plan B. The gospel was not plan B. The gospel was the plan all along. And as Adam and Eve, they enter into sin, they make 
the ungodly choice and the hopelessness described in verses 1 through 3 in Ephesians enter into this world, God had a plan. And with sin comes consequence. And he tells the man, you're going to toil and labor hard to try and produce crops out of the ground. And to the woman, he says, childbearing is going to be difficult and painful. And then he comes to the serpent. He comes to the devil. The devil who believes he has won. He has thwarted God's plans and he has victory. And he says, Satan, you think you have victory now, but you do not. And you think you're going to have victory again someday when you hang my son on a cross and put him in the grave. You, you will think you had one, but you will bruise his heel and he will crush your head. See, the story of the gospel is God's perfect plan that through the hopelessness of sin, he will glorify himself through bringing our salvation through the gospel of Jesus, that Jesus would come, he would live, he would die a death he didn't deserve, he would take the punishment, the weight of the sin of the world into the grave, and he would raise again three days later. Instead of bearing the burden of our sin, he raises victorious, overcoming it, so that we can have freedom, we can have life in him. God's plan was always the gospel. The gospel was not plan B. He put the tree in the garden, knowing what would take place, and he had a plan all along. Uh, verse 8 in Ephesians 2 tells us that it is not of our works so that no one can boast. And this is where our identity in Christ really separates from the identity the world tries to tell you to have. Because the world tries to tell you, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. You do you. Follow your heart. Whatever makes you happy. And we watch our society plummeting into despair and hopelessness. We see things like mental health crisis on the rise and people chasing after hope in all the wrong places. But when we look at the gospel of Jesus, when we look at the word of God, we see that our hope and our identity come from our creator. And our creator had a plan and he's executing it perfectly. And all we have to do is turn to him, receive the forgiveness that he offers and follow him. But it's not for us to boast in ourselves. It's not about our glory. It's for us to boast in our Savior Jesus and to point people towards him because his glory is the greatest thing that ever happened to humanity. We cannot work our way to God. We cannot become godly on our own. This is the truth of hopelessness, of the hopelessness of our sin. We have defiled ourselves before God and he has made a way for us to be set right through Jesus. Key number three this morning, repent of your sin and let Jesus become your identity. Repent of your sin and let Jesus become your identity. My prayer for this room this morning is this, that we would understand the gravity of sin. That we would have a full understanding of the weight of sin and what it has done that it is the great destroyer of hope, that it is the thing that cast us into peril, separation from God, 
but that we wouldn't stop there. We would take the whole passage and we would understand that there's a but God that changes everything. And that God, the true God, the living God, your creator, comes to you with immeasurable grace, great love, rich in mercy, ready to forgive everything that you have done through the blood of Jesus so that you can live freely in the hope he has to offer. You can live in the hope that he intended for his creation at the beginning of time. It starts like this. You believe in who Jesus is and the hope he offers. You confess your sin and you turn and you follow Jesus. You turn and you follow Jesus. That means you're obedient to him. Um, in Luke, Jesus tells the crowd of people following him, you call me Lord, Lord, but you don't do what I say. I wonder how many of us are living that life this morning with the Christian label. And we walk into church and we sing the songs and we say amen, but the reality of how we're living is the Lord of our own life is ourselves. The Lord of our own life are the things that control us, the sins that get the best of us. To follow Jesus means to make him the Lord of your life, to be obedient to him, to trust that when you want to go one way, you see that one way looks better. You know if it's contrary to what God says is good, you follow him because you know what's best. When the world tries to convince you that your identity is wrapped up in things like your, how you identify in your gender or your sexuality, by what university you graduated from or what job you can land or what car you drive or what neighborhood you live in or how many square feet your house has or how big your bank account can grow or how many friends you have or how many likes you get on social media. When the world tries to tell you this is worth and this is value, chase after these things, do what, what is best for you to find fulfillment in your own heart. And some of you have been chasing that and you showed up this morning living in the hopelessness of that, going, I, I feel like I find the answer, but I just feel empty and hopeless inside. You need to turn away from all of the things that don't give God glory in your life. You need to confess those sins Receive forgiveness from the God who's rich in mercy with immeasurable grace. Wherever you're at this morning, whatever you've done that's not too big for God's grace. No matter what your failures or your brokenness looks like, it is not too big for the grace of God that is immeasurable. It is rich. And it is free for the taking this morning. Many of us this morning are living under the crushing weight of hopelessness. Your hopelessness can only go to a life restored and redeemed through Jesus. So follow him. See, the passage in Ephesians 2 is about lives that sound like this. I was hopeless, but God brought me hope. I was dead in sin, but God gave me new life through Jesus. I didn't know joy, but God is the author of joy. And in him, it is, a, it is found in abundance. 
I didn't know peace, but God gave me peace that passes understanding. That even in your hardest day, in your hardest struggle, you can find peace in the hope of God. Knowing that his ways are best. That his truth is never failing. That when he says in Romans 8, 28, he works for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. That that is the reality of who God is. That we can live with great hope and joy even in the hopelessness that this world brings and understand that our hope rests in the fact that Jesus has won for us his eternal glory that he includes us in. If you would just repent of your sins and you would follow him this morning. Does that define you? Is that the hope that you know? I'm going to pray in a minute, and as I do, I just want you to consider in your own life, am I like the people that Jesus talked to who are, he's accusing of calling Lord but not doing a thing that he says? Or am I living for the one? And Am I living for the glory of Jesus, the one who gave everything so that I might live, the one who brought hope when there was no hope? See, because a lot of y'all are, are, your motor's running, but the oil's leaking everywhere all over the ground, and disaster's on its way right now, because you didn't go to the creator. You didn't go to the one who knows you best, and why you're here, and why you exist, who has a great plan for you, a plan to save you from your sin, a plan to give you hope, a plan to include you in his amazing glory. My prayer is you know that hope this morning. And if you don't know that hope, uh, when, when we start singing after, after the prayer, you're welcome to come up and, and find myself or find one of our pastors or elders. We would love to pray with you. We would love to spend time sharing with you why Jesus is our hope and why we choose to live for him and how that can be your reality as well. Would you pray with me? God, we ask this morning that as we ponder the truth of Ephesians chapter 2, we would understand that sin is devastating. There's great condemnation that comes at the weight of guilt of sin. But that condemnation is gone. It is lifted. The price has been paid through Jesus. I pray that we would be a people who would not follow after the world's idea of how we should identify, chasing after our desires, chasing after our own truths, but understanding there is truth and it is found in your word. And that truth is so good because that truth is Jesus and what he has done. God, I pray that this room would not be empty this morning until every person in this room considers the hope of the gospel and leaves confidently changed forever by it. God, we ask that you would renew in our spirits today our hope that's in you through your word. That your word is clear about the devastation of sin, but that you had a plan and you came and you executed that plan in your great love, in your rich mercy, 
with your immeasurable grace. God, there's nothing but hope in you. There's nothing but joy. There's, there's no fault or failure to be found in your ways. Help us to trust and follow you. We confess our wrongdoing. We confess our sin. We thank you for the grace that forgives it. We thank you for taking the punishment for our sin on our behalf. Give us the strength to follow you. Praise your name. Thanks for tuning in to the Hayes Hills Podcast Network. Feel free to follow us for more content. And if you'd like to learn more about our church, you can visit us at hayeshills.com.